I was asked to preach on um, the church of Laodicea, and uh, <clears throat> if you notice up on the screen, I've entitled the message Clueless. So I thought uh, my opening remarks should reflect somewhat on why I chose that title. As I was looking through um, various commentaries on this passage of Scripture, uh, I saw there were various titles for this church. Some refer to it as the useless church. Others called it the foolish church. Others, the conceited church. Still others called it the compromising church. And uh, David Jeremiah referred to it as the disgusting church. Kind of gives you an idea where we're going today. But uh, the one I thought was the most accurate until I came up with my own was uh, John Stott, and he called it the complacent church. Now, the word complacent or complacency is a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievement. Self-satisfaction when accompanied by an unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. It's an instance of an unusually unaware or uninformed self-satisfaction. Now, clueless means having no knowledge, understanding, or ability, completely or hopelessly bewildered, unaware, or ignorant. Now, as Sean mentioned, uh, I uh, am a teacher still in my 46th year. Uh, currently, I am subbing in a middle school. And uh, sometimes I look around and look at some students, and I have to go, man, they're clueless. <laughs> right? And then I have to ask myself, Lord, is that how you see me? When I go about the things I'm doing, Lord, am I clueless too? And see, Jesus is going to be speaking to this church. And that's, in essence, what he's going to call them. Now, a little bit of background to this letter. First of all, the background of the book of Revelation itself. It's written by the Apostle John around 94 to 96 AD while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. Why was he in exile? For his faithful proclamation of the gospel, you ready for this, for over 60 years. He was faithful in the midst of persecution. He was faithful and Rome wanted to kind of move him on so they put him on the island of Patmos, but he still had communications with the churches through letters. And it says in Revelation chapter 1 that he was worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's day. When suddenly he heard a voice, and he turned around to look, and there he saw the exalted Christ. And he bowed down before him as a dead man, and Jesus says, do not fear. You ever notice when people come into the presence of God, they fall down like dead? Because that's how awesome and powerful and holy and righteous God is. And when we recognize ourselves, we just fall down before him. And this is the apostle that the Lord loved. And yet when he sees the risen Christ and his power and his glory, he falls down. Jesus picks him up and tells him, I want you to write to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So Laodicea is the seventh letter 
It would be the last church in the circuit that one would take getting around that region. And so a little background into the city itself. Laodicea was the wealthiest of the seven cities. It was known for its banks, its banking industry. It was known for its manufacture of rare black wool and woolen clothing. Uh, it had a medical school and it had an ISAB that was known for its medicinal purposes and it, according to history, it worked. Laodicea was also in a unique location. It was the junction of two major trade routes between uh, Rome and the Orient. And it was also the economic and judicial center for that whole region. It, had, uh, it was also a center for the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor, and uh, plus the other gods that were um, worshipped at that time. It also had a fairly large Jewish population. And um, they were most known for their pride or arrogance in their wealth and in their uh, self-sufficiency. In the year A.D. 60, an earthquake leveled the city, and they refused help from the emperor. We got it. We'll take care of it ourselves. Can you imagine right now if the governor of Florida said, we don't need any federal assistance. Stay out of here. We, we've got it covered. We'll, we'll handle the destruction we have here. Uh, not in this century. And yet, that was Laodicea. So it just gives us the background to the church itself. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll open up to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. And I'm reading to you from the ESV. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I'm going to start uh, with the last verse, verse 22. And it reminded me of the song, Do You Hear What I Hear? And if we take a look here, we see that uh, Jesus responds here at the end of the message. Um, seven times in the book of Revelation, Jesus will say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Six times in the Gospels, Jesus will say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is something that Jesus wants to pay attention to that we need to hear. 
but some of us have some problems with hearing. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of a story about a husband who was concerned about his wife and her hearing kind of fading away. And so he went to the doctor to see what he should do. And the doctor told her, well, you should give her the distance test. He said, the distance test? What's that? He said, well, speak to your wife on the same level, but uh, from different distances to see how close you have to be before she can hear you. And then come back and see me. So he said, great. So he runs home. He comes in the front door. He just gets inside. He hears his, ki- his wife's working in the kitchen. He says, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? And there's no response. So he walks into the middle of the living room. And while he's there, he calls out again, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? There was still no response. So he walks into the kitchen and he sees his wife. She has her back turned to him. She's working over by the stove. And and he says, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? Still no response. So he walks up to her, taps her on the shoulder. She turns around, looks him square in the face, and he says, Honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? And she said, For the fourth time, we're having chicken. <laughs> mm. Sorry, hon. Uh, how many times are we like that way with God? We pray, and then it's like, He didn't respond. God hears, but do we listen? Are we the ones with the hearing problem? God always hears and answers prayers. It may not be the way we want them to be answered, but he is answering our prayers. Are we listening? Or do we have a hearing problem? Now, that's one distance test. There's another distance test I need to share with you, and I call that the buddy test. See, I had a dog by the name of Buddy. It actually was one of my students who gave it to me. I, I made the mistake. She said, Mr. Panham, you said when you got a house, you would like to have a dog. I said, yes, as well. I work at an animal shelter, and we just had a puppy brought in. And Would you like it? Well, I'd have to see it. it that's a mistake, yeah. right? Don't ever say, I need to see a puppy. I said, oh, okay. So I took him home. Anyways, as he grew up, he's the beagle hound mix. And beagle hounds love to go on exploration trips, right? They want to sniff here, sniff there, sniff everywhere. Now, what I found out was there's a 10-foot rule. Now, see, I was the alpha dog, the alpha male. So he knew that, so he knew he had to respond to me. But there's this kind of side rule that if he could stay 10 feet away from me, he didn't have to respond. So he'd be running, he, if he got out of the yard, he'd be going down, and be calling him, he'd stop and sniff. I'd get right about 11 feet, and then he'd take off again. And then he'd go, he'd start sniffing again, and then I'd get close, and then he'd take off. I had to hope that there'd be something really, whatever, that he'd be sniffing a long time, so I'd get within that 10-foot range, and then he'd listen to me. One time while this was happening, I was really anxious and concerned that something might happen to him. In the midst of my going down the street, the good Lord spoke to me. And he said, now you know how I felt in your 20s and early 30s. When I was calling to you, and you were trying to keep your distance from me so you wouldn't have to obey. Well, then God got my attention. He got within that 10-foot range. 
<laughs> and I did obey. But once more, sometimes we can keep our distance from the Lord because we don't want to have to listen to what he's telling us. Well, we're not done with the test. There's another test, and the first dog we ever had was Sooty. She was a black and white mutt. We called her Sooty, S-O-O-T-Y, because she was all covered in soot when we first got her. And uh, Sooty lived to be over 16 years old. And as she got older, we noticed, or so we thought, that Sooty couldn't hear as well as she used to hear. Because we'd call her and, come here, Sooty, come here. And she wouldn't do anything. Get off the sofa. Come on, get off, get off. And she wouldn't hear. I mean, she wouldn't even respond. Sorry. But then we noticed something else. If we opened up a bag of potato chips, boom, she was right there. What? If we opened up the refrigerator, there she was. You see, the sooty test is selective hearing. Mm-hmm. So, right, when we hear the things we like, oh, yes, dear, what? And we hear that, what you working on? Mm-hmm, I, I didn't hear that. Ooh, you know where I'm going with this. Do we do the same thing with the Lord? Do we pretend we don't hear him when it's things we don't like? Oh, when we see things in Scripture, we like, yes! And when we see things in Scripture, mm. do we avoid those? Mm. And the final test is one of distractions. This is a personal one with my wife and I. If, either way, if my wife is in the kitchen, she's running water, and I'm in the living room, and I call to her, she'll go, honey, I can hear you but I can't understand what you're saying. The water's running. See, there's that noise distraction. The same's true for me. I could be in the bathroom running the water. She could be talking to me, and I got to say the same thing. Honey, I can hear you, but I don't understand what you're saying. See, there's distractions out there. And so once more, what distractions are keeping us from understanding what the Lord is clearly speaking to us? See, once those distractions are turned off, I could hear and understand my wife, she could hear and understand me, but while those distractions, whatever it is that's going on, we can hear something we just don't understand what it is we're supposed to do. So, as we're taking a look at these items, realize this is the Holy Spirit, this is Jesus himself, rather, who's saying, let him hear what the Spirit says. Now, I need to clarify one last point, what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, our English word for church comes from the Scottish word Kirk, K-I-R-K, like Captain Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. Okay? That's Kirk. Well, where did that come from? Well, that is the Scottish version of the Greek term kuriakos. Now, the Greek term kuriakos appears only twice in the New Testament. It means belonging to God. So it appears in reference to the Lord's Supper, and it also appears in Revelation where John says, on the Lord's day. So that's kuriakos. Okay, well, then this word church in our Bible, what Greek word is that? Well, those of you who have been in my new members class know I make a big point of this. It's the word ekklesia. See, ekklesia is an assembly. It's calling people out of their normal life and normal activities for a special purpose. For example, at school, we may have an assembly, but the assembly is in the auditorium or it's in the gymnasium. We're calling people out of their normal schedules to come together for a special purpose. 
So that's the word that's chosen to reference what we now call the church. It's an assembly. It's the gathered ones, those who've been called out of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to be on a special mission to take the gospel to the whole world, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. Hmm. That's the ecclesia. And that's each and every one of us. So he's writing, and he says here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to those called out once on mission with me. We see Jesus himself referencing in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, take care then how you hear. He also says in Mark 4, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added. The more carefully we listen, the more clearly we will hear, the more we will understand. And in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus calls people to himself and tells them, hear and understand. All right, well, let's take a look then at who's doing the speaking. In each of the seven letters, Jesus opens up by identifying himself with very characteristics of who he is. And each of these characteristics come from John's description of Christ when he turned and saw the risen Christ. And you'll see those in Revelation chapter 1. But he selects those that are pertinent to that particular church and what it is they need to hear based on the message he needs to tell them. Okay? So, we see here that the Lord introduces himself with three titles. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So the first title he gives himself is the Amen. Interestingly, amen is a Hebrew word. It was transliterated into the Greek as amen. It was then transliterated into the Latin as amen. It was then transliterated into uh, just about every European language, into the English language, into most languages around the world, simply as amen. Well, what does the Hebrew word amen mean? Well, the best place to find it is in Isaiah 65, 16, and it refers to it twice. And this, um, the word amen means basically truth. And it's a title for God. It says, Elohim amen. Elohim is Hebrew for God. Amen is truth. God is truth or God of truth is how God refers to himself. So Jesus is saying, I am the amen. Now, Normally, the word is used by humans as an acknowledgement of that which is sure and valid as our human response to divine truth or divine action. In the Gospels, we see Jesus many times saying truly or truly, truly, and then going on to speak. That's the Greek word amen. But we don't have Jesus saying amen, amen, and then speaking, we have him say truly, truly. Why? Because amen means what? It's true. Truthfully, right? He's speaking the truth to us. Now, elsewhere, when we see in, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, we see what? Somebody proclaiming a truth about God and then going, Amen. See, we say it after the proclamation, 
Because we're saying it's true. Jesus spoke beforehand. This is true. And then a fourth way, Jesus is the amen in another sense in that he is the perfect human obedient response to the divine promises. When we hear or see something God does, we say amen. When God promises something, we say amen. Jesus was that amen because he was obedient perfectly in response to God. Next title Christ gives for himself is the faithful and true witness. Now we know that a witness is a person who has firsthand knowledge. They've seen something. They know something about a person or event. In criminal justice system, we know that there are three duties that uh, uh, witnesses have to do. Number one, they have to appear. Number two, they have to testify or speak the truth. And number three, they have to answer questions. Now in Greek, the word for witness is martus, M-A-R-T-U-S, from which we get our word Martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R. See, in an ethical sense, it's used for those who, after Christ's example, prove the strength and the genuineness of their faith in Christ, even unto death. They were witnessing their faith in Christ in the arena, or sometimes like Nero, putting them as torches, setting them on fire. Or in other case, all you, have to, all you have to do is just light this candle to the emperor and we'll let you live. Well, if I do that, I'm saying the emperor is God and the emperor is Lord and he is not. I know who God is. I know who my Lord is and I will not do that. Okay, then you'll die. Okay, I'll die. Witness, even unto death. I mean, no, Jesus witnessed unto God, even unto death, and that was death on the cross. Then we see the word uh, faithful means worthy of trust or trustworthy. And we also see that the word true. True means opposite of what is fictitious or counterfeit or imaginary or simulated or pretended. It's the opposite of imperfect, defective, frail, or uncertain. It's real and genuine. Christ is the real, genuine, trustworthy witness. Not only of God, but a witness of our lives. We can trust Christ for what he knows about us. Okay? And the last title he takes is the beginning of creation. The Greek word arche, translated in the ESV as beginning, has a sense of origin or source. So in essence, it's saying that Christ is the origin or the source of all creation. Now the words also used of God and of Jesus in Revelation. We'll see uh, both ways refer to uh, God, but uh, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It means eternal. And we also see an emphasis on Christ being the origin of creation in John chapter 1, which begins in the Greek, in arche en su logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was 
made. And so we see that Jesus is the creator, the origin, the source of all creation. Okay, so that's who's speaking. What's Christ's discernment? And what is his rebuke? Jesus starts off, I know your works. Earlier in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said in verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In 1 Chronicles 28, 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. And so we see that the Lord knows our works. Interestingly, the church in Laodicea is the only church of the seven that did not get a commendation. Of the other six churches, all of them got commendations and then four got rebukes. Only two of the churches got commendations with no rebukes. But Laodicea, there wasn't one thing that Christ could commend them for. Mm. The reference then, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. What's that referencing? Well, as proud and as arrogant as Laodicea was, they had one kind of small, actually kind of big problem. And that was they had no water supply of their own. So they had to use the aqueducts to bring in water. About six miles away was Heriopolis that had hot springs that were known for their therapeutic value. And of course, if we have a hot beverage that's very soothing, especially in the cold weather, then 10 miles away was the city of Colossae, and they were known for their cold, pure springs. But the Lysus River once went by uh, Laodicea. By the time it got there, it was muddy and mucky. And, you know, basically back then, they used to throw human waste into the water in the river, and it would just kind of flow down. So they couldn't drink that. So the water they had pumped in through the aqueducts, by the time it got to Laodicea, was lukewarm. But also along the way, having gone through those aqueducts, and some were even underground, uh, the minerals had bleached into the water, and so it tasted bitter. And it was even smelly. And so Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the Greek word there actually means, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's, it's a revulsion for what it's tasting. That's what Jesus has to say with the church in Laodicea. This is a metaphor that condemns Laodicea for not providing either spiritual healing, being hot, or spiritual refreshment, being cold, to those around them. It's a condemnation for their lack of works and their lack of witness. Their lack of works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had prepared works for each individual in the Laodicean church, just as he's prepared works for each and every one of us. And yet he's telling those individuals, I don't see it. You're not doing anything I've called you to do. And then also a lack of witness. Once more, Jesus is the 
faithful and true witness. And he's saying, you are not. You're neither faithful nor true in your witness. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, what does that mean for unbelievers? Okay, those of us who've been born again have God's Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us. The fruit of that Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, now, if people taste that in us, they're seeing God is good. Now, I once said when I retired from teaching, I would never go back. That was back in 2012. God had other plans. And then he called me from the high school down to the middle school level. I don't know what he was thinking. Wasn't on my radar screen, but he had different ideas. And basically, as I tell people, I am working on my PhD in the fruit of the Spirit. Patience. Room full of sixth graders. Kindness. Gentleness. Yeah, all of those opportunities are there for me to display the love and the presence of Christ in the lives of others, whether they know him or not. Now, oh, I have to tell you, no, I don't always get 100% every day. Being the teacher, yeah, that's my report card, and yep, my principal will tell me I didn't do so well here or there, you know. That's not my principal, that's the Lord telling me that. But anyways, those are things I try to work on. Now, we get to the phrase, for you say, I am not knowing you are. When I saw that, that's where I came up with the thought, of clueless. They did not realize what was going on. They were clueless. Okay? They were useless to Christ because they were complacent, self-satisfied, and indifferent to the real issues of faith in him and of discipleship. Their deeper problem was their ignorance of their real condition. They claimed, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. When in reality, Christ told them they were wretched, they were to be pitied, they were poor, blind, and naked. I noticed the I, I, I in there. That reminds me of something I shared with you back in the summer, and that is the unholy alliance of me myself, and I. When we start focusing on ourselves and not on the Lord and not on others, we're in an unholy alliance. There's a second unholy alliance, and that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't want to be part of that one either. So understand, when we're focusing on ourselves, we're missing out. Henry Blackaby, in his devotional experience of God day by day on July 22nd, wrote, the God of this age can blind you to the reality of Christ. Christ's presence can make a, diff a significant difference in your life. However, if Satan convinces you to doubt that Christ can do what he promised, he will have blinded you to the reality of what your life is really like and to what your life could become. 
Others may see what your unbelief causes you to miss, but you will be aware, you will be unaware of it. Your life will be steadily moving toward disaster, but you will be oblivious to it. It's interesting, other than alluding to pride, in this particular letter to this particular church, he doesn't really fault them for anything they're doing. See, in the other churches where he rebukes them, the four that he rebukes earlier, there are specific things he's calling them out for. Well, what's going on here? Basically, when we think of sin, most often than not, we think of what's called sins of commission, things we do. But see, they were guilty of sins of omission, things that they should be doing in the Lord's name that they weren't doing. They were so busy with everything else going on, they never really had time for the Lord. So what is Christ's counsel to us that he gives us in love? Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white garments so you may clothe yourself and sh the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. First of all, I counsel. In Isaiah 9, 6, we find out that one of the titles for Jesus is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The wonderful counselor is saying, I counsel you. Can you get any better counsel than that? Our wonderful counselor wants to give each of us the counsel we need for what is best for us. In the case of this particular congregation, the goal was to shake them out of the complacency and to renewed fellowship, a renewed relationship with him. They needed to change their attitude about from one of self-dependence and self-reliance to one of dependence upon God. One of the things I pray every morning on my way into the on the way into school in the car is that Lord, the things that are going to happen today, you've allowed into my life that I might learn not to rely on myself but you. That I would learn to depend upon your grace and not my own wisdom. And that's how you've called me to act towards everyone and every situation I encounter today. It's learning to be dependent upon the Lord. So, the word uh, refined by fire means to purify. Gold is purified so that the dross is, is melted out of it and scooped away from it, and then you have pure gold. Spiritually speaking... Fire means that we are to be purified. God refines us through trials to remove the sin from our life and to make us more like Christ. Now, the white garments there represent spiritual purity, which is interesting because, remember, the Laodiceans were uh, very proud of their black wool garments. So it possibly represents that the Laodiceans proud and unredeemed spiritual condition needed to be replaced with the white garments of purity that Christ provides. Laodicea was also known for its ISAV, and yet Jesus says they needed to buy ISAV from him to cure them of their spiritual blindness. So all those things 
that they relied on had no spiritual value. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, understand something. There can be a misconception to the phrase that's often used, God's unconditional love, to mean that God loves me irregardless of what I do, what I say, whatever. He's, he loves me. No. God loves you enough to discipline you and to rebuke you when you're out of line. Why? Because he cares for you. We see this um, emphasized in Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Goes on to say, be zealous. That means do it now, don't delay. And repent. Turn back to Christ. Or as we said earlier, draw closer to him. He's drawing closer to you. Draw closer to him. So what does Christ call and promise to this church? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Once more, as I said, they were so busy enjoying all the worldly pleasures, they did not realize Christ's absence from their midst or the fact that Christ was knocking, trying to re-enter and restore fellowship with them. The church, which is once more the individuals in the church, needed to realize they need Christ in every area of their life and ministry. And they had to repent of their self-sufficiency and compromise. So Jesus stands at the door of everyone's heart. But notice the response, if anyone. That's individually. That's speaking to each of us. If anyone will do what? Number one, hear his voice. Ah, there we go again with this concept of hearing. Is something distracting me from hearing the Lord? I need to remove that. I need to be able to hear what he's saying. And then number two, obedience. Open the door and let him in. Jesus will come in and do what? He says, they'll have a meal together. In the ancient world, having a meal together was the closest form of fellowship. That's why the Pharisees always objected when Jesus went in to eat with tax collectors and sinners. He's fellowshipping with them. But once more, that's what Jesus wants to do with us because he wants to restore us to fellowship. And then it says, the one who conquers. Okay, uh, we see in Romans 8, 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, Christ who loved us. So through Christ, we can conquer, we can overcome. Ephesians 1, 5 tells us that we have been adopted as sons. Now it's important to understand, today we generally adopt infants or little children. In the Roman world, they adopted adults. How many of you remember the movie Ben-Hur? Well, Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, was a Jewish nobleman who then became enslaved and then saved the admiral of the fleet's life. And the admiral of the fleet, a Roman citizen, adopted him. Now, understand something. With adoption, legally, that old person no longer exists. You are an entirely new person. 
That's why even though we were born again, born into God's family, it also says we are adopted. That old life no longer exists. That old person no longer exists legally before the eyes of God. You are a new person in Christ. And not only a new person, you are an heir. Romans 8, 17. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's why Christ can say, and you will sit with me on my throne because we are joint heirs with Christ. Do we deserve that? No way. Just demonstrates the depth of God's love. However, Romans 8, 17 goes on to say, here's the condition. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does that mean? That means being faithful to the end. That's perseverance. That's being a witness regardless of the cost. Well, we're back to where we started with Revelation 3.22. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to those who have been called out of the world to be on mission with God. Hebrews 2.21 tells us, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Later in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And James reminds us in James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. There's a song by Fernando Ortega that I listen to quite frequently called Give Me Jesus. And it says, In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Is that our heart? He says, You could have all this world just give me Jesus. We're going to give you time to prayerfully consider what the Lord is speaking to you today. What has the Lord revealed to you that he wants you to do? What area of your life needs the Lord's loving attention and correction? What is the next step of obedience for you? If there's someone here who has never placed their faith in Christ, you can do that this very day. Up front here we have the altar. When this church was originally built, the original congregation, the original assembly, we all wrote prayer requests along these steps that are still going up to God's throne of grace. And some of those people who wrote on here have graduated and are now in heaven with the Lord. And if they could speak to you, they tell you, we are praying for you now that you will respond to the Lord in the way in which he is calling you to do because he's got that perfect plan for you. He has the power to change and transform your life. So whether you need him for salvation or sanctification, the purification, the transformation of your life, or you need him for healing, Lord is here. If you want to come up and bow before the altar and pray, you may. If you want to pray in your seat, you may. If you'd like somebody to pray for you, please come forward. We will. But we're going to give you some quiet time to do business with God. 
So please quietly pray at your seats or come forward. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We're thankful that you love us enough to correct us. Sometimes, Lord, when we know we're wrong, other times, Lord, when we're clueless and had no idea of what you were calling us to do or to be. Lord, I just pray now that not one of us would leave here without having done business with you that not one of us would leave without recognizing your deep, deep love for us, without recognizing how much you care for us, that even when we're wrong, you're there to correct us and to welcome us back into fellowship. Father, I just pray that you would put your blessing of peace and grace upon each and every person here this day. I pray that they would draw closer to you. I pray that you would remove those distractions from our lives that cause us to miss what you're saying to us, that hinder our hearing of you. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to receive, and wills to obey all that you're calling us to do. For Lord, you have called us to do everything for your glory. You have said that whatever we do, whether it's in word or deed, we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, you have said that whatever we do, we are to work at it with all our heart is working unto you, Lord, and not unto mankind. And that whatever happens, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of you, Lord, pleasing you in every way, for you are the one we must please. You are the one who examines the motives of our hearts. And so, Father, we thank you even now for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and, Lord, your promises of all that you're going to do. We praise you now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.